Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the Eastern Border. Properly this time. As you could hear by the presence of our theme song, which is uh, My Army by the Red Army Choir, to those of you who didn't know this, Anate is back from vacation, so it's time to do a proper long-form episode this time. As I mentioned in the last short news app, part of this is going to be about Shoigu and how he's being criticized. But frankly, to explain this... This episode is going to be about the differences between the worldviews of the supporters of the federal, sort of liberal, approach to the Russian state pursued by, well, people in power and, and Putin. Let me be precise here, liberal only by the adherents of this worldview. And the adherents are these um, true Russians, as they call themselves. Imperialists, pretty much old monarchists, old Soviet fans, these kind of people. And these are the people who dislike Putin, but kind of like Girkin and his buddies, which, by the way, includes them, they are um, disgruntled by Russia's less than stellar, so to speak, performance in the war with Ukraine. Again, I uh, have to say a huge thank you to Mdmitri from wartranslated.com, as he does wonderful translation work and has saved me a lot of effort, and, you know, since I got my arm back in working condition, you know, I am doing my own stuff, but he's still a lot of help, and that's just great, and I, you know, I wish him all the best. And, of course, to all the Nafo fellas out there, never pronounce that nonsense, or the stupid attempt at being funny, I suppose. But yeah, in general, this episode is named as Russia's War with the Russian Federation, since, well, that is how these people themselves tend to present their situation, how they present this conflict internally, and why they still claim, very often, that the Russian government does not care about the Russian people. And they agree to this part, they agree to some of uh, Navalny's ideas even. Except that the fact that they think that the United States and Western Europe is to blame. This episode will probably involve a lot of, a lot of hints at racism, although, you know, they probably don't mention that that openly, at least. Not in the publicly available channels. Homophobia, though, is quite rampant, but... Um, yeah, it's weird, since, well, can't really tell you who's gonna be 
the next man in charge after Putin leaves, but these guys certainly want it to be them. And they have all sorts of plans. A depressing, for a pro-war side, text was shared by an ex-Ukrainian, now pro-Russian politician, Dmitriev. He's originally from Odessa, but he lives in Russia since 2014. He's a very active supporter of this war, and he's clearly of the true Russian side. Now, this wasn't his own post, but the one that he endorsed by sharing on his Telegram channel. The original poster is a somewhat obscure Russian commentator, who sometimes posts something interesting. I very rarely translate him, but that's a post shared by this guy, a politician, and so we can treat him as his own version of events. And this text just kind of shows that the last couple of months have been, you know, full of surprising revelations from some of these true believers. And this isn't quite different, really. This whole thing kind of makes me understand that, you know, despite their own internal conflicts, which I'll get later on to, since as I was recording this episode, some new information came in and um, that'll be at the end. But it does appear that they're finally starting to understand a simple truth, which is that Russia wouldn't really have to invade and attack anyone if it was capable of giving, you know, some real value to surrounding countries. Which is, you know, one thing that a lot of more opposition journalists, more liberal journalists of Russia are saying, although I don't I disagree with them on, on a lot of things. This is what I understand that, yeah. But more importantly, they start to understand that Russian Federation, as it is now, because I have to split up this, because Russia is what these true Russians want to build, and Russian Federation is what we have now, and they clearly separate the two, is the fact that current Russian government has failed at uh, both the socio-economical aspect of their own government and um, the war. And they sort of present this as if Russia, as we know it today, would be a fake state, a kind of a hologram of this true Russia. It's, it's a complex issue, and here I'm going with this a bit more philosophically, but they really have built this very correct, very kind of solid Russia in their own heads, and they build their own dream palaces, in a way. The interesting part is that they, of course, as all, well, fascists, imagine that if they would live under an authoritarian system, they would be the ones at the top. But yeah, this post here. Quote, <clears throat> Humanity has long been aware of one simple truth. For you to be valued, for your opinions to be considered, for you to matter, it's important for you to represent something integral. Recent events of the past few days and everyday conversations led me, that is, well, the author of the post, I'm just quoting here, to thinking of the people who sympathize with Russia. Sympathy for Russia translates into sympathy to the Russian Federation since there is no alternative. An alternative is the most terrifying thing for the contemporary Russian Federation. But we're not talking about it now. Just recently, on the internet, a discussion of soft power came up. The conclusions were as follows. Russian Federation uses the image of Russia for its own selfish purposes. A huge socio-economic simulation of Russia was built. Russia is a mosque, which the feudal corporative Russian Federation is using. But if for the internal consumer this image works decently, for the external, which is other states and their population, it became a reason for the inadequate perception of the actions of the Russian Federation. Russia is an image which the RF is using extremely ineptly. The efficiency of the Kremlin Noviops, which is a um, Russian term used to describe representatives of the so-called new historical community, sort of an, a weird Sovietization, fake Soviet people stuff, two combined all its nationalities into one, and they're all 
of Russian imperialists is in the negative range. They are suffering from this no less than the population they control, and their fate is unenviable. But Noviops are not to be felt sorry about. They are Cretans who in 30 years have not reached the common truths. They are not losers, they are truly intellectually handicapped. On the opposite, they are very clever and perform a multi-move to eliminate our country and our people from the political map of Europe. What is better? To each their own. Now, here, obviously, the author points at the difference between Russians and the citizens of the Russian Federation, which is important division here, because the later term, Rossiyani, not Ruskie. Ruskie is, well, how you would call Russians as ethnic Russians. Rossiyani are all the peoples who live in the Russian Federation, a lot of whom, well, are being oppressed and sent to die in this war, such as Buryats and, you know, Tatars are also very much disappointed with the whole thing. Yeah, this... Um, this whole term Rossiyani has been extensively used in um, my Russian Federation to basically describe everyone, because, you know, they're trying to hide their um, internal colonialism. See, the author here believes that, um, that he believes in the replacement theory. If you're kind of, you know, into more like conspiracy theories about the Western world, you've heard of this in the sense that, you know, peoples from, from various ethnicities are being intentionally sent to replace the Westerners. Well, Russia has their own weird replacement conspiracy theory, which is being enforced by calling the citizens of Russian Federation instead of Ruskie, now they're calling Rossiyani. But that's a minor thing, because like I said, Russia is mostly colonial. And uh, local Tatars and Buryats, they don't like being called Ruskie. Rossiyani is something that they can swallow with a bunch of beer and vodka and on top of it, but it's still not really nice. Just to explain this. For the author, the modern Russian Federation, with its <clears throat> imaginative imperialism, is a simulation of the very real Russia, the true Russia, that was destroyed during the Soviet rule. Being a simulation, it um, kind of takes form of a corporation with a clearly defined ruling elite. And, well, it's also not effective, and to that we can agree. But, you know, carrying on. Quote, However, we feel sorry for the common folk. What drives them? Irrational, blood-bound attachment to Russia. They love Russia, but Russia does not reciprocate, because instead of Russia, there is the Russian Federation. Sorry for those who entered the open fight with the enemies of Russia and was betrayed by the Russian Federation. Sorry for those who never waited for their own to come. A lot of water has flowed under the bridge since 2014. Millions of Russians were sold, but the special military operation appeared to be the second chance. But it turned out to be a second, even more global disappointment. In 2014, the Russian Federation did not enter Ukraine as it fell for some agreements. And this was the worst thing for the Donbass and Kharkiv Russians. Donbassians, which is a bizarre term because there is no such people as Donbassians, but fine, whatever, carrying on with the quote, were slain with guns without hesitation. Kharkivites! Oh. Sometimes, sometimes, you know, these, um, these things hurt my brain when I do this, but I'll, I'll manage. <clears throat> were slaughtered in the SBU basements. Of, of course, yeah. Like I said, we have to bear on, because this can hurt your brain if you listen to these crazies, but hey, I'm doing this every day, and, and well, this really brings some understanding. Carrying on. In other regions, it turned out more honestly, without illusions. This year, the Russian Federation entered three oblasts, Kiev, Cherniv, and Sumy, which it abandoned a month later as a result of some new agreements, as if the old ones were fulfilled by anyone, other than the Russian Federation. Although Russian Federation really didn't honor them, but... I won't even comment on the total discrepancies between this post and reality. Do we have any idea how many of those sympathizing with Russia have died after all of this? 
because people succumb to the irrational feeling of attachment to Russia. End quote. See, adepts of this true Russia are common, but they're not needed by the Russian Federation or Putin's government. That's how they feel. They truly kind of see that, you know, not only these true Russians were abandoned in the 2014 conflict because they welcomed the annexation of Crimea, well, to be honest, they were just used by the oligarchy of the Russian Federation for their own goals and left to be eliminated by Ukrainians. Here, we can see in this author of this post a common problem with Russians who are simply unable to view the world outside of this imperialistic framework. Regardless of whether it is the Empire of Russia, the Russian Federation, USSR, you name it. They can only see Ukraine through the prism of ownership. And to extend Baltics as well, and like, they have some respect for Poland, but everyone in the Baltics, everyone who was just, you know, who used to be a part of the Russian Empire, yeah, they wish to see us as puppets of someone else without agency and without, you know, equal rights in the EU as well. They are incapable of moving on from the past despite fully realizing what sort of a gimmick the Russian Federation turned out to be for the true Russians. See, those who came to fight in Ukraine in 2014 against Ukraine and in this invasion thing were hoping for Russia to be reborn. However, these guys are now starting to feel a lot of disappointment. And apparently a lot of death as well. And, you know, carrying on the final part of this quote. Recently I saw a video of some old believers who moved to the Russian Federation, from Latin America or something like that. Why did they come? To be tortured by Soviet bureaucracy, deprived of any illusions about the difference of Russia, which they left, and the Russian Federation where they arrived? They trusted the familiar image, abandoned their lives there to settle down here. For what? Generally, I feel humanly sorry for anyone who sacrificed everything for Russia, but ended up in the realities of the Russian Federation. Either betrayed for murky agreements, or utterly disappointed. It is because the Russian Federation is nothing of itself. Why would it be? if it is a neo-feudal corporation. And people have yet to understand it, although there were reasons to start thinking before. And when it happens, the Russian Federation won't be able to continue riding on the residual movement of sacrificial Russian passionarism. While the Sivilyanov, Strelkov, Zhilin, Zakharchenkos, Mozgovis, which are, by the way, uh, the various heroes of the Russian Spring of 2014, most of them war criminals, most of them dead, by the way, at this point, you know, uh, he glorifies them as heroes, obviously, the author here, carrying. And others appear on their own. No, this won't happen. Then the Russian system will stall completely and a total nightmare will begin. Again, another note, total nightmare is basically human rights, uh, European Union, actual trade, actual progress, actual achievements, you know, people not living in poverty, all this stuff for which we are uh, literally the devils or something. And all this against the backdrop of a complete loss of fear for the Russian Federation on the part of the external players. Yeah, because apparently, to these true Russians, the fact that Russia is super intimidating and that we all are afraid of it is kind of the lead driving force. The special operation was meant to give to these true Russians another chance to restore what they call historical justice, what everyone else calls, well, madness. But the Russian Federation failed once again, the author concludes. It didn't act in 2014 by invading Ukraine in full, which is, by the way, the thing that Gitkin has been telling all the time. And it once again failed to reach the true target it declared to the internal audience. To conquer Ukraine and outplay the whole world. Well, obviously, it failed because it is essentially incapable of producing anything but value for its owners and Putin and his oligarchs. And, uh, yeah, this is kind of weird. Because... They also don't understand that even if these true Russians 
they stand for everything that they themselves claim to hate. But they're also being criticized since the Putin's propaganda is super hardcore, and they're also portraying Ukrainians as the ultimate evil. So we're in a bit of a weird situation here, really. You see, it appears that the rift between these two approaches, one of Russia and one of Russian Federation, which also are apparently very different kind of people, is widening. Basically, these true Russians felt, you know, like I said just before, let down. And now, they feel like they're under attack as well. A few days ago, the pro-Russian internet space blew up after the news came through about an arrest by the Russian security forces in Melitopol, that's in Crimea, of Lieutenant Colonel Alexei Silivanov, who acts as a deputy head of the Ministry of Internal Affairs of the occupied Zaporozhye region. Silivanov was known for supporting the pro-Russian movements during the events of 2014 while working in the Ukrainian Ministry of Internal Affairs. He switched sides, was not liked by the Ukrainian authorities, obviously, like a traitor. Described to be a staunch supporter of this so-called Russian world, he was also a monarchist, a person who personally raised flags over liberated towns. Silvana was an important figure. His arrest by the Russian services led to an uproar. Confused, pro-Russian sources put the blame on Ukrainian forces in Moscow, on crooked policemen who want him sacked and get him out of the way of their dealings, and other reasons. Now, obviously, we don't know exactly what happened with Silivanov. One way or another, he hasn't been heard from for a week. And Russians see this arrest as a direct attack on their movement. No less, quote-unquote, outrageous is the visit of two policemen in Moscow to the official residence of the LPR blogger Moors, whose criticisms of the way of the special operation, how this whole thing is conducted, were shared and translated on a number of occasions. I've been using him, Girkin's been, you know, relating on him, and right now Girkin also has stated that someone has clearly very treacherously written reports on him. Like, literally, just now, uh, Moors is himself posting that it must be some work of some spies, and yet they still kind of, you know, they, they keep hope that Putin is actually among the true Russians, and everyone around him are just these oligarchs, but it's just going a bit weird. The first uh, splitting apart, as you can see. Moors is currently in Donbas, helping with supplying the pro-Russian forces with drones. He's fixing them, I, I mean, you know, the thing that I used to do while I was in college. He's an active supporter of the Russian world movement since early 2000s, and, well, yeah, a fairly close acquaintance of Igor Girkin. At the very least, they share some mutual respect, which is not common for Girkin, although they also argue a lot. Luckily for Moors, whom, again, I've mentioned on the show, he was not in Moscow, otherwise there would be a great chance that he would have been arrested, and he would be already behind bars, which certainly wouldn't be liked by his colleagues. Yet, these true Russians, for whom Moors belongs to, are um, quite unlikely to be able to enjoy the same safety that includes Girkin himself. Unless, you know, he's just a puppet for the FSB. Which also is quite possible. We can't really exactly claim that there's a massive crackdown on the Russian authorities on all the outliers representing the project Russian world in its most radical form. Which, by the way, puts a clear boundary between them and the official position. And there's also... Not much evidence, documented anyways, that there's a lot of huge links between the arrest of Selivanov and a visit to Mr. Moore's either, but... But... This still demonstrates a rift. 
which is likely to continue expanding as the prospects of the Russian success of the special military operation dwindle. You see, Russian Federation, on paper at least, Putin presents Ukrainians as the devil and the West as evil. But he's also, you know, a very self-preserving man. He wants to keep in power and all this stuff. And, you know, he understands that this might lead to a terrible collapse if he loses. And he does not share this idea of a massive isolation from the world, because this is, you know, he also has kept Elvira Nabiulina in power, and, and he keeps people who have some Western mindset around him, at least. Dumb people, yes, but still. Someone that we can kind of talk to. And you see, when he isn't super harsh, then these radicals, well, they're uh, pushing for some changes, which uh, Putin doesn't like, which is also very harmful for him, so there is a conflict right there. So, with time, and especially in circumstances of a successful counter-offensive by Ukrainian forces, criticisms of Kremlin's authorities might start coming from all kinds of unexpected corners, and perhaps even the most loyal supporters of authorities. So, situation is definitely not a simple one. And now, in this light, I can give you what Girkin thinks of Shoigu as kind of an example of this true Russians versus the Russian Federation, because true Russians, they believed all the propaganda and all the image that Putin had built for Russia. And they're shocked, truly shocked, that it doesn't apply so, they're a bit angry. Hello there, and thanks for listening to another episode of The Eastern Border. Dear Patreons, thank you more than ever for supporting our show. Your donations are crucial to keep us going, and right now all of your money is going to securing good information for you and to fund Kristov's actual real-life mission to Ukraine to report to you live about the war that is going on there. Also, we would like to use this opportunity to urge you to donate to other organizations that are helping people escape Ukraine safely and to defend the country for those who decide to stay on the ground. One such organization we would like to highlight is the Defending Ukraine Together Come Back Alive movement. Launched in 2014, the Come Back Alive became the biggest organization providing support to the armed forces of Ukraine. You can donate directly from their webpage, comebackalive.in.ua. Remember that no donation is too small. In this situation, every dollar matters, every cent matters. If you're uncomfortable with giving money to war, they do have a position on their website that they are providing Ukrainian army with laptops, lights, photo equipment, cables, and is not purely military. Perhaps that might change your mind, but remember you can also donate to strictly humanitarian organizations such as the Red Cross and others that are helping people escape Ukraine safely. Please also keep following us on social media for all of your latest updates on Eastern Border on places like Twitter and Facebook. Keep listening, keep yourself informed. That's all from me now. See you online. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, I think I can give you the kind of the judgment of uh, our good old buddy, best enemy ever, Igor Girkin, about Shoigu. But now you can have some proper context for this. So, from Igor Girkin, quote, You are slamming Shoigu, accusing him of the fact that the army was not ready for war, that it has little of the latest armaments. But is Shoigu the main culprit? It was not him who was dealing with armaments, but Chemezov which is uh, the CEO of Roscheck, Vice Premier Borisov, uh, Deputy Minister of Defense in 2012-2018. They are the main perpetrators. And it's not even him directing the military operations, but the general staff. And it is the general staff leadership that must be held accountable for the failure of the military operations in Ukraine. Well, he responds to this now. I understand that the positions of the Asian crown prince, in air quotes, who quite frankly aims to be a successor to Putin, obviously, has been shaken so much now that the Subatai Bator's avatar, note, uh, this is a Gherkin's nickname for Shoigu referencing his Siberian heritage, now needs public defenders. There weren't any seen before. And I respond, what was the fireman slash reindeer breeder responsible for at all? Because, well, fireman slash reindeer breeder was Shoigu's official profession in the Soviet army. And yeah, he really didn't even held, held guns when he was serving the time there. If not for weaponry, not for leading the troops, only for tank biathlons and a construction of housing for the servicemen or what? No, friends, the person in charge of the department is responsible for everything. The Minister of Defense is responsible for armaments, for organization, for the deployment of personnel, for finance and for the rears. For everything that's happening in the armed forces. But in our situation, when the war is officially not declared, and accordingly the commander-in-chief, that is Putin, has not created a special department for military leadership, the Supreme High Command Council, he's also the highest military official in the state. And in this status, he bears responsibility for military planning and commanding military operations. And now let's ask ourselves, could such an individual continue leading the Ministry of Defense in a normal country given everything that happened in the five months of the SMO? After it turned out that not only we have no strike and reconnaissance uh, drones, and from those that we have, two-thirds were bought by volunteers, not only there are no armored vests and modern helmets for the personnel, but we do not have anything that is basic. All the deadlines for armament delivery have been completely failed. Moreover, we are simply unable to procure and produce the necessary vehicles, given serious sanctions, in required numbers. The leading staff deployed under direct leadership of Sergei Kuznetovich are demonstrating an astonishing level of military incompetency. Three successive defeats during crossing of Siversky Donetsk at Belohorivka are an obvious example, and there are dozens of examples like that. Wild understaffing of troops at the front line, in places 30-40 people in a whole battalions, not militia but regular contractors. All the while, people are en masse called to join various light infantry private military companies, formed under the auspice and at the basis of the Ministry of Defense. Who is meant to be responsible for that? 
let's assume that Shoigu truly couldn't do anything. Only thieves and bureaucrats all around. What would an honest person do in his place? Perhaps not publicly, but he would go to the president or sit next to him by the fire during a joint pike hunt in the Tiva River and say, Volodya, I'd love to make a candy out of our army, but you see your friendos are around who can only steal and won't let me do it. Sack me. I don't want to be responsible for someone else's idleness and theft. Did Shoigu do it? No, he didn't. What he did was change the army uniform to the USA style, organized many PR projects in military style, and posted them actively for 10 years. He also replaced laminate for tiles as part of the highest inspections and constructed the main temple for the armed forces, which a true orthodox person is afraid to enter. And the fact that he took on the chest of the highest order of St. Andrew the Apostle, the first called with swords for reunification with Crimea, that is for military merits, no? So he was in charge of the operation? Or was it different in Crimea and we don't understand? So he received order orders for successful operations, but when the unsuccessful ones started, he has nothing to do with them? Well, we have plenty of people like that here. Whatever VFE official you spit at, they immediately yell, What for? Not a word, not a sound was heard from the Minister of Defense in the five months about the real problems of the armed forces of the Russian Federation at the front lines of a new difficult war. The supplying and replenishment of the troops is at the roughly same level, without taking into account the heavy losses incurred. A large number of refuseniks at the front lines, there are no queues of volunteers at the enlistment offices and many of those who come are turned back. And nothing is done to improve the situation. Once again, what would a suddenly honest Minister of Defense do in the place of Sergei Kuznikovich? Perhaps he would come to the President and say, Dear Vladimir Vladimirovich, I can't do this anymore. There's not enough soldiers and officers at the front. We are moving from storage to vehicles from the middle of the last century. We're equipping the mobilized militias of LDPR with Dikterov's machine guns of the model year 1928 and Mosin-Nagan rifles from 1891. Declare mobilization. We need to replenish and equip the army. And if you can't sack me, I cannot lead like this. We will lose the war. After all, he could leave due to illness. But no, no. He's flying around, awaiting orders, giving away heroes, stars, and batches. Promoted Konoshenko for blatant lies. No, guys. I, that is Igor Girkin, will never have a kind word for this plywood marshal. Not for his feats during destruction of the USSR in the inner circle of Borka the drunk, that is Boris Yeltsin. Not for complicity in the mass murder of the Russian people during the October 1993 coup d'etat, uh, which didn't really happen, you know, the mass murder part, that is. And not even for the collapse of the Ministry of Emergency Situations, which was also turned into many ways into a PR service unable to carry out responsibilities during a major natural disaster. But for him, following Serdyukov, by the way, uh, he Serdyukov was the Minister of Defense of Russia between 2007 and 2012, and his successors, turning our armed forces into a rebel incapable of defeating a serious enemy. And also, I'm confident that while Plywood Marshall is at the helm, there will be no serious changes for the better, regardless of how long and how much the honest generals, officers, and soldiers get beaten and beat the enemy. But the Plywood Marshal won't let anything move. He's so greedy, so stupid, envious, frivolous, and vainglorious that he will consider any positive activity to be an attempt to get rid of him. Like I said, I wanted to start this episode with this message by Igor Girkin. But I understand that, you know, you needed to hear about the rift before. And now, like I mentioned at the beginning, Girkin himself was asked, well, well, then what is your opinion? Because these people who support Putin and support Shoigu, because they've been told to all this time, 
you know, they continue asking Girkin, well then, what would you do differently? And we're lucky enough that he actually responded. So, thankfully, we have in Igor Girkin's one of the latest posts on Telegram, a kind of a point-by-point -point thing, which I think is fairly representative of these true Russians. True Russians in the very weird sense, because there are a lot of good Russian people out there, but uh, these fascists are not among them, definitely. And they also probably would want to conquer my country, so can't really love them either. But Igor Girkin has provided us with a nice little list about what these guys would do and what they want to achieve, what's their worldview and how they think Russia could win the war. Now, on the bright side, it looks, you know, very scary to me, being here in Latvia. And if they would do this, then, um, then Russia could probably win this war. And Igor Girkin thinks that until this is done, then Russia won't win this war. And as we're pretty sure, as, you know, he and his guys are getting arrested, that this won't be done, from this we can extrapolate that um, Russia's probably not winning in the long term. How long? Well, it's a different question, but still. At any rate, here's his list. Political issues, in the sense of what needs to be done. 1.1. Officially state the political goals of the war. Undersigned. Not special military operation, but the war. 1.1.1. The combination of Nova Russia, the new Russia, which is basically the whole Donbass and everything else, with Russian Federation by the line Kharkov, Dnepropetrovsk, Krivyroch, Nikolaev, Odessa. All included. So he wants to basically cut down all of this and kind of unite even with Transnistria. 1.1.2. The question about immediate, as soon as we win, we, meaning Russia in this case, kind of reunification, all of Slobozhanitsa, including Chernigovsk and Sumsk. Basically, all of this needs to be kind of figured out and decided about how all of these areas will be joined together with Russian Federation, together with Kiev. Because he thinks that Kiev is a totally Russian city. 1.1.3. Liberate and denazify all of Malarasia, uh, Little Russia, at the minimum by the Linia Kerzona, or Line of Kerzon. Earlier, in quotes, right now, create and liberate the territory right now, that is earlier before the victory, the governments in, basically, of this liberated Ukraine under control of us, and instantly um, create a deal with them about uh, military help, and right now start the process of well, lawyering out the idea of creating a new unitary government with the goal of further reunification with Russia. Basically, create little Belarus and create little kind of fake governments, which um, kind of like what they did in the Winter War with Finland back then. And uh, Igor Girkin comments here. Basically, with this act means that Junta in Kiev will lose all legitimacy. Why? Nobody knows, but he says they'll do so. In this case, we will not have any need to declare war to the so-called state of Ukraine. We can continue to cover with a, a nice leaf of peace under the so-called special military operation, under the banner of showing aid to the peoples of our brotherly Malarasia. 
in their turn, this leadership of this totally under Moscow's control, the government of Malorossiya, must officially return into the whole of Russian Federation Novorossiya, but with obviously lawyered out and prepared deals. Again, obviously this, uh, to me, and to everyone who's sane enough reads like a horror story, but he continues and we're gonna we have a lot to go. Point two. Economical things that need to be done. Immediately cut off any and all exports through the territory of Ukraine, including oil and gas. We must make a complete economical blockade of so-called Ukraine, because he always puts Ukraine in air quotes, from the sides of Russian Federation and Belarus. Inside of Russian Federation, that's 2.2, immediately start the transfer of all industry to military kind of uh, style of everything, military industry basically. 2.3, immediately uh, reorganize and overlook all the planned projects and well, no, projects that have been started with totally all federative and regional, uh, regional importance and, well, kind of either stop or remove those who are not critically important for the strategic development of the war. The freed workforce should be moved to the military industry, including building bunkers, or just be recruited into the army, and all the resources to military needs. Talking about the resources to military needs, a side thing from me, so that I don't go completely insane while reading this insanity. Um, he recently looked at how Spartak Moscow, one of the biggest football teams in Russia, had just bought some foreign player for about $100 million or something. Or, or less, probably less. I don't remember the exact amount here. But he was yelling that they shouldn't have been allowed to buy anything, that all this money should have gone to military goals. Because Igor Girkin thinks the economy still works like in the 50s, but, you know. 2.4. During the time of military action... Take under governmental control all businesses who produce either military or other strategically important production. Nationalize all foreign property inside of Russia. Yes, yes, let that sink in. And uh, basically make sure that mobilization is not spread out to the workers in transport, energy, and basically healthcare uh, organizations forbidding firing from their workplaces and basically making sure that these people who work in these industries are not being mobilized for the army. If you're screaming out loud at your screen or whatever you're listening to this, yeah, I understand why. And now we get to the what he calls or basically what needs to be done in the war strategically and, well, with, with some politics included. 3.1. Partial mobilization in the Russian Federation Armed Forces and the mobilization of all industry so that more war production can be created. Immediately a formation, basically logistics, of uh, maximum possible amount of new divisions and battalions need to be created. And also we need to fulfill the existing ones up until the official necessary amounts. Because Currently, something with 20 men can be called a battalion by Russian paperwork. Just, that's a comment from me here. And um, they also want to... This is the heavy part, I'm sorry, guys. They want to start shooting people again. Quote, Remove moratorium on the death penalty. And make sure that those who uh, kind of 
leave the army whom they're contracted with, they get shot. They want to implement shooting people for not fighting in this war. And, well, state martial law in all the near front regions and oblasts where any strikes of enemy could be threatened with. And also everywhere where it's necessary by the necessities of war. So, while he and his uh, fellows are being arrested and he protests against this, he wants to implement, you know, death penalty himself. Hmm, how much fun this is, really. 3.3, and this is where we get to the real fascism. Officially cease all rights and freedoms to all citizens of Russian Federation during the period of, well, military actions under the existing historical precedents. Concentrate the executive power under one institution, creating a Государственный комитет обороны, GKO, or State Committee of Security. Putting on it all the responsibility on all, all the abilities about leading the government during the time of all military action. Create a position of the commander of, of chief, putting on this position all the leadership of all the military actions on all fronts. 3.4. This continues, guys have to take a serious look at creating of resources of working migrants from the countries of the community of independent states. That is all the stands. Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, all these places. First of all, at those who have already acquired Russian citizenship or, you know, permit to live. To basically serve on the front or in the reserves. Igor Girkin states that what must be done is they should also be forcibly mobilized and... Um, well, shot, if they refuse. To those people who refuse to be mobilized, all these people, that is, well, apply force in kind of the common pool of things, but yeah, like I said, if he wants to shoot people for this, then he obviously wants to, wants to kind of shoot these people too. Non-citizens, that is non-citizens of Russia, who do not want to serve, use on um, forced labor, which is fun, or immediately deport. This is just great. 3.5. Immediately fire from all echelons of power all the persons who could be vulnerable under pressure of foreign intelligence services in relation with them having some money or assets abroad. Now the best part comes. Close the borders of Russian Federation from a free exit to abroad to all categories of both citizens and non-citizens. Which means that, yeah, if you're a British journalist, then according to Girkin, you should just stay there, because you will not leave. He wants to mobilize the whole country and turn it into a fascist dictatorship, even worse than it is now. Think about it. 3.6. Clearly state in the international level that any, any, including delivering weapons, from any government to Ukraine and any other interruptions with this operation will lead to war with the Russian Federation, including nuclear. Fun times. These true Russians, true believers, also state that, yeah, apparently West is now planning to nuke uh, Russia so that, so that uh, they could blame it on Russia so that nukes would start flying. Like I said, this, this whole show isn't easy for me to make, but it is what it is. At least now you know what kind of insanity we're looking at on a daily basis. And then, you know, when I get some comments about 
Ukrainians being the Nazis. Well, look at, look at this. How do you would name this, then? At any rate, this is it for today's episode. Remember that happiness is mandatory. And please consider becoming our patron at patreon.com slash border. And follow us on Twitter at eastern underscore border. You can look us up at Facebook as well. And, you know, on Twitter there's also this button that helps you become our patron. This was a big, big one and we're going to have some interviews soon as well. For now, до свидания, товарищи. And again, remember, happiness is mandatory. Hope that it doesn't come to your country. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border Show. If you have any questions or comments, go to our website, theeasternborder.lv, and leave a comment there. Or email us at theeasternborder at gmail.com. We'll be sure to answer. You can also follow us on social media and contact us there. If you enjoyed this episode, then leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about us. It really helps us grow the show. And remember, happiness is mandatory. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.